Help us make the sleepy bookshelf even better for you. You can vote on which books I should read at sleepybookshelf.com. Good evening, and welcome to the Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm Elizabeth, your host. And it's lovely to have you here with me, because tonight we'll be returning again to A Christmas Carol. But before that, let's take some time to unwind and relax. Take a big stretch where you are and feel the tension release from your muscles. I invite you to join me in some circular breathing. We're going to inhale through our nose for a count of four and out through our mouths for eight. So, deep breath in through your nose for one, two, three, four. And now out through your mouth for one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. If you like, keep breathing like this while I recap on our last episode. Last time, Scrooge was sat in front of the fire in his room, trying to get Marley's face out of his mind, when he looked up to see the disused bell on the ceiling begin to ring. Then all the other bells in the house joined in, chiming together, followed by a dreaded clanking of chains from the cellar. This clanking got closer until his door opened and there his old friend Jacob Marley was before him, though much changed. Scrooge noticed he could see the buttons on the back of Marley's coat through the front of him and he was weighed down by chains made of ledgers, safe deposit boxes and keys. Trembling, yet sensible, Scrooge asked what Marley wanted from him, and the spectre replied that he was doomed to walk the earth after death, but that Scrooge had one more chance. He warned that Scrooge would be visited by three spirits the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and Christmases yet to come. Then he disappeared through the window, and the next thing Scrooge knew, he awoke in his bed in the blackest of night. As the clock chimed one, a hand pulled back the curtains around his bed and a strange, childlike figure was there. It instructed Scrooge to rise, and the two flew out the window and onto an old country road, which Scrooge recognized to be a path from his childhood. Young boys whom he remembered were running along it joyfully, and he called out to them in vain, for they could not hear him. And here we pick back up, with the spirit reminding Scrooge of a lonely little boy still left inside the schoolhouse. So lie back and relax as I turn to the next pages of A Christmas Carol. 
they left the high road by a well-remembered lane and soon approached a mansion of dull red brick with a little weathercock-surmounted cupola on the roof and a bell hanging in it. It was a large house, one of broken fortunes, for the spacious offices were little used. Their walls were damp and mossy, their windows broken, and their gates decayed. Fowls clucked and strutted in the stables, and the coach houses and sheds were overrun with grass. Nor was it more retentive of its ancient state within, for entering the dreary hall and glancing through the open doors of many rooms, they found them poorly furnished, cold, and vast. There was an earthy savour in the air, a chilly bareness in the place, which associated itself somehow with too much getting up by candlelight and not too much to eat. They went, the ghost and Scrooge, across the hall to a door at the back of the house. It opened before them and disclosed a long, bare, melancholy room, made barer still by lines of plain deal forms and desks. At one of these, a lonely boy was reading near a feeble fire, and Scrooge sat down upon a form and wept to see his poor forgotten self as he used to be. Not a latent echo in the house, not a squeak and scuffle from the mice behind the panelling, not a drip from the half-thawed water spout in the dull yard behind not a sigh among the leafless boughs of one despondent poplar, not the idle swinging of an empty storehouse door, no, not a clicking in the fire that fell upon the heart of Scrooge with a softening influence and gave a freer passage to his tears. The spirit touched him on the arm and pointed to his younger self, intent upon his reading. Suddenly, a man in foreign garments, wonderfully real and distinct to look at, stood outside the window with an axe stuck in his belt and leading by the bridle a donkey laden with wood. Why, it's Ali Baba, Scrooge exclaimed in ecstasy. It's dear old honest Ali Baba. Yes, yes, I know. One Christmas time when yonder solitary child was left here all alone, he did come for the first time just like that. Poor boy. And Valentine, said Scrooge, and his wild brother Orson, there they go. And what's his name, uh, who was put down in his drawers asleep at the gate of Damascus? Don't you see him? And the Sultan's groom, turned upside down by the Janil. There he is upon his head. Serve him right, I'm glad of it. What business had he to be married to the princess? To hear Scrooge expending all the earnestness of his nature on such subjects 
in a most extraordinary voice between laughing and crying, and to see his heightened and excited face would have been a surprise to his business friends in the city indeed. There's the parrot, cried Scrooge. Green body and yellow tail, with a thing like a lettuce growing out of the top of his head. There he is. Poor Robin Crusoe, he called him when he came home again after sailing round the island. Poor Robin Crusoe. Where have you been, Robin Crusoe? The man thought he was dreaming, but he wasn't. It was the parrot, you know. There goes Friday, running for his life to the little creek. Then, with a rapidity of transition very foreign to his usual character, he said, in pity for his former self, Poor boy, and cried again. I wish, Scrooge muttered, putting his hand in his pocket and looking about him after drying his eyes with his cuff. It is too late now. What is the matter? Asked the spirit. Nothing, said Scrooge. Nothing. There was a boy singing a Christmas carol at my door last night. I should like to have given him something, that's all. The ghost smiled thoughtfully and waved its hand saying as it did so. Let us see another Christmas. Scrooge's former self grew larger at the words, and the room became a little darker, more dirty. The panels shrunk. The windows cracked. Fragments of plaster fell out of the ceiling and the naked lathes were shown instead. How all this was brought about, Scrooge knew no more than you. He only knew that it was quite correct, that everything had happened so. There he was, alone again, when all the other boys had gone home for the jolly holidays. He was not reading now, but walking up and down despairingly. Scrooge looked at the ghost, and with a mournful shaking of his head, glanced anxiously towards the door. It opened, and a little girl, much younger than the boy, came darting in and putting her arms about his neck and often kissing him, addressed him as her dear, dear brother. I have come to bring you home, dear brother, said the child, clapping her tiny hands and bending down to laugh. To bring you home, home, home. Home, little fan, returned the boy. Yes, said the child, brimful of glee. Home for good and all, home for ever and ever. Father is so much kinder than he used to be, but home's like heaven. He spoke so gently to me one dear night when I was going to bed that I was afraid to ask him once more if he might come home, and he said, Yes, you should and sent me in a coach to bring you. And you're to be a man, said the child, opening her eyes. And are never to come back here. But first, we are to be together all the Christmas long and have the merriest time in all the world. You're quite a woman, little fan, exclaimed the boy. She clapped her hands and laughed and tried to touch his head, but being too little, laughed again 
and stood on tiptoe to embrace him. Then she began to drag him in her childish eagerness towards the door, and he, nothing loth to go, accompanied her. Terrible voice in the hall cried, Bring down Master Scrooge's box there. And in the hall appeared the schoolmaster himself, who glared on Master Scrooge with a ferocious condescension and threw him into a dreadful state of mind by shaking hands with him. He then conveyed him and his sister into the verest old well of a shivering best parlour that ever was seen, where the maps upon the wall and the celestial and terrestrial globes in the windows were waxy with cold. Here he produced a decanter of curiously light wine and a block of curiously heavy cake, and administered installments of those dainties to the young people, at the same time sending out a meagre servant to offer a glass of something to the postboy, who answered that he thanked the gentleman, but if it was the same tap as he had tasted before, he had rather not. Master Scrooge's trunk, being by this time tied to the top of the chaise, the children bade the schoolmaster goodbye right willingly, and getting into it, drove gaily down the garden sweep, the quick wheels dashing the hoar frost and snow from off the dark leaves of the evergreens like spray. Always a delicate creature whom a breath might have withered, said the ghost. But she had a large heart. So she had, cried Scrooge. You're right. I will not gainsay it, spirit, God forbid. She died a woman, said the ghost, and had, as I think, children. One child, Scrooge returned. True, said the ghost. Your nephew. Scrooge seemed uneasy in his mind and answered briefly, yes. Although they had but that moment left the school behind them, they were now in the busy thoroughfares of a city where shadowy passengers passed and repassed, where shadowy carts and coaches battled for the way, and all the strife and tumult of a real city were. It were made plain enough by the dressing of the shops that here too was Christmas time again it was evening and the streets were lighted up. The ghost stopped at a certain warehouse door and asked Scrooge if he knew it. Know it, said Scrooge. Was I apprenticed here? They went in. At a sight of an old gentleman in a Welsh wig, sitting behind such a high desk that if he had been two inches taller, he must have knocked his head against the ceiling. Scrooge cried in great excitement. Why, it's old Fezziwig. Oh, bless his heart. It's Fezziwig alive again. Old Fezziwig led down his pen and looked up at the clock, which pointed to the hour of seven. He rubbed his hands, adjusted his capacious waistcoat, laughed all over himself, from his shoes 
his organ of benevolence and called out in a comfortable, oily, rich, fat, jovial voice. Ho-ho there, Ebenezer, Dick. Scrooge's former self, now grown a young man, came briskly in, accompanied by his fellow apprentice. Dick Wilkins, to be sure, said Scrooge to the ghost. Bless me, yes, there he is. He was very much attached to me, was Dick. Poor Dick. Dear, dear. Oh, ho, my boys, said Fezziwig. No more work tonight. Christmas Eve, Dick. Christmas, Ebenezer. Let's have the shutters up, cried old Fezziwig with a sharp clap of his hands. Before a man can say Jack Robinson... You wouldn't believe how those two fellows went at it. They charged into the street with the shutters. One, two, three, had them up in their places. Four, five, six, barred them in and pinned them. Seven, eight, nine, and came back before you could have got to twelve panting like racehorses. ho cried old Fezziwig, skipping down from the high desk with wonderful agility. Clear away, my lads, and let's have lots of room here. ho Dick. Cheer up, Ebenezer. Clear away. There was nothing they wouldn't have cleared away or couldn't have cleared away with old Fezziwig looking on. It was done in a minute. Every movable was packed off as if it were dismissed from public life forevermore. The floor was swept and watered. The lamps were trimmed. Fuel was heaped upon the fire. And the warehouse was as snug and warm and dry and bright as a ballroom as you would desire to see upon a winter's night. In came a fiddler with a music book and went up to the lofty desk and made an orchestra of it and tuned like fifty stomach aches. In came Mrs. Fezziwig one vast, substantial smile. In came the three Miss Fezziwigs, beaming and lovable. In came the six young followers, whose hearts they broke. In came all the young men and women employed in the business. In came the housemaid with her cousin, the baker. In came the cook, with her brother's particular friend, the milkman. In came the boy from over the way, who was suspected of not having bored enough from his master, trying to hide himself behind the girl from next door but one, who was proved to have had her ears pulled by her mistress. In they all came, one after another, some Shyly, some boldly, some gracefully, some awkwardly, some pushing, some pulling. In they all came anyhow and everyhow. Away they all went, twenty couples at once, hands half round and back again the other way, down the middle and up again. Round and round in various stages of affectionate grouping. Old top couple always turning up in the wrong place. New top couple starting off again as soon as they got there. All top couples at last and not a bottom one to help them. 
When this result was brought about, old Fezziwig, clapping his hands to stop the dance, cried out, Well done! And the fiddler plunged his hot face into a pot of porter, especially provided for that purpose. But scorning rest upon his appearance, he instantly began again, though there were no dancers yet, as if the other fiddler had been carried home, exhausted on a shutter, and he were a brand new man, resolved to beat him out of sight or perish. There were more dancers, and there were forfeits, and more dancers, and there was cake, and there was negus, and there was a great piece of cold roast, and there was a great piece of cold boiled, and there were mince pies, and plenty of beer. But the great effect of the evening came after the roast and boiled, when the fiddler, an artful dog mind, a sort of man who knew his business better than you or I could have told it him, struck up Sir Roger de Coverley. Then old Fezziwig stood out to dance with Mrs. Fezziwig, top couple too, with a good stiff piece of work cut out for them. Three or four and twenty pair of partners, people who were not to be trifled with, people who would dance and had no notion of walking. But if they had been twice as many, perhaps four times, old Fezziwig would have been a match for them, and so would Mrs. Fezziwig. As to her, she was worthy to be his partner in every sense of the term. That's not high praise. Tell me higher and I'll use it. A positive light appeared to issue from Fezziwig's cards. They shone in every part of the dance like moons. You couldn't have predicted at any given time what would have become of them next. And when old Fezziwig and Mrs. Fezziwig had gone all through the dance, advance and retire, both hands to your partner, bow and curtsy, corkscrew, thread the needle, and back again to your place. Fezziwig cut, cut so deftly that he appeared to wink with his legs and came upon his feet again without a stagger. When the clock struck eleven, this domestic ball broke up. Mr. and Mrs. Fezziwig took their stations, one on either side of the door, and shaking hands with every person individually as he or she went out, wished him or her a Merry Christmas. When everybody had retired but the two prentices, they did the same to them, and thus the cheerful voices died away, and the lads were left to their beds which were under a counter in the back shop. During the whole of this time, Scrooge had acted like a man out of his wits. His heart and soul were in the scene, and with his former self. He corroborated everything, remembered everything, enjoyed everything, and underwent the strangest agitation. It was not until now, when the bright faces of his former self and Dick were turned from them, that he remembered the ghost and became conscious that it was looking full upon him when the light upon his head burnt very clear. A small matter said the ghost, to make these silly folks so full of gratitude. 
small, echoed Scrooge. The spirit signed to him to listen to the two apprentices who were pouring out their hearts in praise of Fezziwig, and when he had done so, said, Why, is it not? He has spent but a few pounds of your morsel money, three or four baths. Is that so much that he deserves this praise? It isn't that, said Scrooge, heated by the remark and speaking unconsciously like his former, not his latter self. It isn't that, spirit. He has the power to render us happy or unhappy, to make our service light or burdensome, a pleasure or a toil. Say that his power lies in words and looks, in things so slight and insignificant that it is impossible to add and count them up, what then? The happiness he gives is quite as great as it cost a fortune. He felt the spirit's glance and stopped. What is the matter? Asked the ghost. Nothing particular, said Scrooge. Something, I think? The ghost insisted. No, said Scrooge. No, I should like to be able to say a word or two to my clerk just now, that's all. His former self turned down the lamps as he gave utterance to the wish, and Scrooge and the ghost again stood side by side in the open air. My time grows short, observed the spirit. Quick. This was not addressed to Scrooge, or to anyone whom he could see, but it produced an immediate effect. For again, Scrooge saw himself. He was older now, a man in the prime of life, His face had not the hard and rigid lines of later years, but it had begun to wear the signs of care and avarice. There was an eager, greedy, restless motion in the eye, which showed the passion had taken root and where the shadow of the growing tree would fall. He was not alone, had sat by the side of a fair young girl in a mourning dress, in whose eyes there were tears which sparkled in the light that shone out of the ghost of Christmas past. It matters little, she said softly. To you, very little. Another idol has displaced me, but if I can cheer and comfort you in time to come, as I would have tried to do. I have no just cause to grieve. What idol has displaced you? He rejoined. Golden one. This is the even-handed dealing of the world, he said. There is nothing on which it is so hard as poverty, and there is nothing it professes to condemn with such severity as the pursuit of wealth. You fear the world too much, she answered gently. All your other hopes have merged into the hope of being beyond the chance of its sordid reproach. I have seen your nobler aspirations fall off one by one until the master passion, gain, engrosses you. Have I not? What then? He retorted. Even if I had grown so much wiser, what then? I'm not changed towards you. She shook her head. Am I? My contract is an old one. It was made when we were both poor and content to be so, until in good season we could improve our worldly fortune by our patient industry. You are changed. 
When it was made, you were another man. I was a boy, he said impatiently. Your own feeling tells you that you are not what you are, she returned. I am. That which promised happiness when we were one in heart is fraught with misery now that we are two. How often and how keenly I have thought of this, I will not say. It is enough that I have thought of it and can release you. Have I ever sought release? In words, no. Never. In what, then? In a changed nature. An altered spirit. In another atmosphere of life. Another hope as its great end. In everything that made my love of any worth or value in your sight. This had never been between us, said the girl, looking mildly but with steadiness upon him. Tell me, would you seek me out and try to win me now? <laughs> no. He seemed to yield to the justice of this supposition in spite of himself. He said with a struggle, You think not. I would gladly think otherwise if I could, she answered. Heaven knows. When I have learned a truth like this, I know how strong and irresistible it must be. But if you were free today, tomorrow, yesterday, can even I believe that you would choose a dowerless girl? You, who in your very confidence with her weigh everything by gain, or choosing her if for a moment you were false enough to your one guiding principle to do so. Do I not know that your repentance and regret would surely follow? I do. And I release you. With a full heart. For the love of him you once were. He was about to speak, but with her head turned from him, she resumed. You may, the memory of what is past half makes me hope you will have pain in this. A very, very brief time, and you will dismiss the recollection of it, gladly, as an unprofitable dream from which it happened well that you awoke. May you be happy with the life you have chosen. She left him, and they parted. Spirit, said Scrooge, show me no more. Conduct me home. Why do you delight to torture me? One shadow more, exclaimed the ghost. No more, cried Scrooge. No more, I don't wish to see it. Show me no more. But the relentless ghost pinioned him in both arms and forced him to observe what happened next. They were in another scene and place. A room not very large or handsome, but full of comfort. Near to the winter fire sat a beautiful young girl so like that last Scrooge believed it was the same, until he saw her, now a comely matron, sitting opposite her daughter. The noise in this room was perfectly tumultuous, for there were more children there than Scrooge in his agitated state of mind could count, and unlike the celebrated herd in the poem, they were not forty children conducting themselves like one, but every child was conducting itself like forty. The consequences were uproarious beyond belief, but no one seemed to care. On the contrary, the mother and daughter laughed heartily and enjoyed it very much, and the latter soon beginning to mingle in the sports, got pillaged by the young brigands most ruthlessly. 
what I would not have given to be one of them. Though I could never have been so rude, no, no. I wouldn't for the wealth of all the world have crushed that braided hair and torn it down, and for the precious little shoe, I wouldn't have plucked it off. God bless my soul to save my life. As to measuring her waist in sport as they did, old, young brood, I couldn't have done it. I should have expected my arm to have grown round it for a punishment and never come straight again. Yet I should have dearly liked I own to have touched her lips, to have questioned her. She might have opened them, to have looked upon the lashes of her downcast eyes, never raised a blush, to have let loose waves of hair, an inch of which would be a keepsake beyond price. In short, I should have liked, I do confess, to have had the lightest license of a child, yet to have been man enough to know its value. But now a knocking at the door was heard, and such a rush immediately ensued, she, with laughing face and plundered dress, was borne towards it the centre of a flushed and boisterous group, just in time to greet the father, who came home, attended by a man laden with Christmas toys and presents. Then, the shouting and struggling, and the onslaught that was made on the defenceless porter, scaling him with chairs for ladders to dive into his pockets, despoil him of brown paper parcels, hold on tight by his cravat, hug him round his neck, pummel his back, and kick his legs in irrepressible affection. The shouts of wonder and delight with which the development of every package was received. The terrible announcement that the baby had been taken in the act of putting a doll's frying pan into his mouth and was more than suspected of having swallowed a fictitious turkey glued on a wooden platter. The immense relief of finding this a false alarm. The joy and gratitude and ecstasy. They are indescribable alike. It is enough that by degrees the child and their emotions got out of the parlour, and by one stair at a time, up to the top of the house, where they went to bed, and so subsided. And now Scrooge looked on more attentively than ever, and the master of the house, having his daughter leaning fondly on him, sat down with her and her mother at his own fireside. And when he thought that such another creature, quite as graceful and full of promise, might have called him father, had been a springtime in the haggard winter of his life, his sight grew very dim indeed. Well, said the husband, turning to his wife with a smile, saw an old friend of yours this afternoon. Who was it? Guess. How can I? Tut, I don't know. She added in the same breath, laughing as he laughed. Mr. Scrooge. Mr. Scrooge it was. I passed his office window, and it was not shut up, and he had a candle inside. I could scarcely help seeing him. His partner lies upon the point of death, I hear, and there he sat alone. Quite alone in the world, I do believe. Spirit, said Scrooge in a broken voice, remove me from this place. Told you these were the shadows of the things that have been, said the ghost. That they are what they are. Do not blame me. 
remove me, Scrooge exclaimed. I cannot bear it. He turned upon the ghost, and seeing that it looked upon him with a face in which some strange way there were fragments of all the faces it had shown him, wrestled with it. Leave me. Take me back. Haunt me no longer. In the struggle, if that can be called a struggle in which the ghost, with no visible resistance on its own part, was undisturbed by any effort of its adversary, Scrooge observed that its light was burning high and bright, and dimly connecting that with its influence over him, he seized the extinguisher cap and by a sudden action pressed it down upon its head. The spirit dropped beneath it so that the extinguisher covered its whole form. But though Scrooge pressed it down with all his force, he could not hide the light which streamed from under it, an unbroken flood upon the ground. He was conscious of being exhausted and overcome by an irresistible drowsiness, and further of being in his own bedroom, he gave the cat a parting squeeze in which his hand relaxed and had barely time to reel to bed before he sank into a heavy sleep.